This is the Build Our Future podcast. We shape our buildings, and afterwards our buildings shape us. A window into the past, present, and future of the construction industry. There's still a lot of unlocked doors. Clarity with design, craftsmanship with the build. There's still a lot to find out and do and invent. Collaboration for our future. You know, I don't think it's the end of the invention. The Build Our Future podcast with Raul Faria. Let's build. Begins now. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the inaugural episode of the Builder Future podcast, where we talk all things past, present, and future of the construction industry. I'm very excited to launch the show with the president and CEO of the Toronto Construction Association, John Mullenhauer. You know, construction associations in your municipality and region, they do play a vital role in the industry we are a part of. And I'm really looking forward to learning more about the TCA, their goals, achievements, and where they see us going in the future. Before we dive deeper into the association, John, I'm really, really curious. How did you get into this role? I would love for you to share a little bit more about your journey up until this point. I've been with Toronto Construction Association since January of 2006. And I'm often asked why a construction association. And the truth is, it isn't something I sought. It landed on my lap. I was called because somebody thought that it would make a good fit, an existing board member of TCA. And uh, I told them that I didn't think it was a good fit for me, but that I would think about it. And then there was a a follow-up call and a meeting just to chat. As it turns out, I was on my way with a group of people from Toronto Golf Club to Ireland to play golf, Ireland and Scotland. When I arrived expecting to have a one-on-one call, found that there were a bunch of board members there and lots of questions. And we had a great conversation, and I went away thinking that it would not be something I would want to do. I love being a part of the construction industry and being on the bricks and mortar side of it, so I couldn't at that time imagine myself on the association side. And went away to play golf for a week and came back with an entirely different perspective. And how long has it been since you've been with them? Well, that's nearly 15 years ago. <laughs> amazing, amazing how things happen that way, right? It is, it is interesting how things turn out, yeah. What lured you into the association? Well, I've always been passionate about the industry. I spent a good part of my uh, career as a general contractor. Uh, Mullenhauer was among the, the larger general contractors in, in Canada and and elsewhere. We were as far abroad as Sydney, Australia, and Saudi Arabia oh, wow. at one time. And we also had a, a development company, which was an interesting business. Often people go from development into construction and less frequently the other way around. Ultimately, that was our Achilles heel for Mollenhauer in, in uh, 1993, the second recession, as you'll recall, in 10 years. And the banks reacted very differently in 93 than they did in 83. They were pretty supportive and patient with the economic downturn in 83. In retrospect, they found that they should have been more aggressive. So when we slipped into recession again less than a decade later, they were pretty aggressive. In any event, I found myself in 2006 on the association side. And even after I started there, I thought that might last a very short time. And 15 years later, I continue to love it. So passion for the industry, I guess. And and it feels like we're making a contribution. It feels like we're chipping away and making a little bit of a difference to improve things for the industry. And if I didn't feel that, I wouldn't still be there. So that that's the long-winded answer. So did your concept of the TCA or a construction association change before you joined and then after you joined? By that, I mean, it's like, what is a construction association, like fundamentally at the end of the day? Like, did your knowledge of it or understanding of the role it played change? After you joined? Yeah, that's two or three questions. Yep. But uh, in, in sort of a backwards order, 
Uh, the first question is, as an association, we're no different than any other association. I mean, we exist as a group of people who come together around a common goal or purpose. And for us, that goal is to help businesses in the construction industry, employers specifically in our case, be more profitable and, and prosper in an industry that has at times had challenges, certainly the recent past is a great example with COVID. So we are and have always been, uh, TCA was founded in February 1867, so it's actually older than Canada. So we are both Canada's oldest and largest uh, mixed trade local construction association. And, and that's, I think, kind of good news and bad news. It's nice to be in a busy market in Ontario. I think we're Without COVID, we would have been 15 or 16 billion in building permits, which is by any standard an enormous market. Going into COVID, we had uh, 158, I think, tower cranes, which made us number one in North America in high rise. Uh, number three, though, in the third biggest market in North America. So there was a time we were even bigger than New York and LA. We've been bigger than Chicago in construction terms for a while. Oh, for sure. I mean, we, we can see the expansion going on just here within uh, the greater Toronto area, how everything is just speeding up vertically. Yeah. I mean, uh, Toronto uh, accounts for a little more than half of everything that goes on, at least the GTA in Ontario. And those are big numbers at say 15 billion a year. So it is, by any standard, a superheated market. But, you know, as a resident of Toronto, you get the good with the bad. So it's terrific that we're attracting investors. Our city is growing and prospering. And that's the good news. The bad news is hand-in-hand hand with that goes noise, congestion. And as our city evolves, we are in an urbanization trend. So. The big banks, for example, 25 years ago, moved non-essential personnel to the suburbs because in those days when it was $40 a foot downtown, it was 20 a foot in the suburbs. And the big employers like the banks couldn't rationalize paying double uh, the occupancy cost for someone that, that could as easily do their job in the suburbs. And and that trend has reversed. People would rather be downtown and they're working in a smaller space. They're less likely to have an office, more likely to be working in a little kiosk or something. So it appears that, that young families are preferring to be in a condo, which is located downtown and near their jobs, than to have something in the suburbs with a backyard. And these trends cycle, uh, as you well know, but the condo market has changed Toronto. So what used to be all industrial, commercial, and institutional in the core is now mixed use. And so if you were building an office building downtown, your neighbors were office buildings. If you're building an office building downtown now, some of your neighbors are high-rise condos. So there's a sensitivity around noise and congestion. And uh, so that changes the dynamic in the cities. And in Toronto, as the most densely populated city in Canada, you can imagine that it's particularly complicated. But we are busy for a reason. One of the reasons we're spending so much money, for example, on infrastructure is that is that governments for years neglected infrastructure and now and they realized not so long ago that they had to pay the piper. And so now they're beginning to spend money on infrastructure. So roads and subways and hospitals and the like. And that's not going to stop anytime soon. It wasn't complicated when they did have a good look at it to appreciate that it costs them more if they neglect it for years and then try to fix it all at once. So I think we'll see that continue. And, and, and what that translates it into for construction is that the construction industry will remain busy for the foreseeable future, even after uh, what I think is an inevitable global recession. 
And I think most economists uh, have been predicting something pre-COVID, of course. And in North America, it looked likely that that would happen sometime in the first quarter or two after the U.S. election in November. I'm not sure whether COVID exacerbates that and causes there to be a recession sooner than it would otherwise have happened, or just the reverse. What we know is that governments are spending enormous amounts of money during COVID on health-related facilities and other things. It may actually do just the opposite. It may actually stave off a recession a little longer. All that infrastructure spend, you remember our recovery from the global economic meltdown that happened worldwide in 2008 really didn't affect us much here. And one of the reasons it didn't, and the obvious reason is more conservative banking, but another of the reasons that we were less affected here is that we were spending more money on infrastructure than many other companies because of all the decades of neglect to kind of catch up. So we had aggressive government spending. And and so, you know, we used to be able to predict economic cycles, and that's more difficult now. You know, I wonder, based on what you're saying, if it's almost not a trade-off, because I can see as well out here, at least in Ontario and Toronto, that they are spending so much more money on infrastructure, on healthcare services, you know, not as much with schools and that kind of stuff, but... What I do in terms of the construction industry, I, I mainly deal with private clients, right? Like restaurants, that sort of stuff. And they are refocusing their efforts on their existing businesses and almost putting a pause for, you know, four months, six months, just to see what the new guidelines restrictions are. So I wonder if we're still on the same path as just more of an offset from one side to the other. I guess we can't really tell unless we go through the process right now. Well, as you say, it's difficult to know for certain. We live in interesting times. Everything is changing, and it is infinitely more complicated now than it than it was. Yeah, I remember when I started on the association side, having been on the private sector side for the for my entire life, pre TCA, our industry hadn't changed much in a hundred years. I know that we've had a look at, at some of the records that existed at TCA in 1867 before Canada was even a country and the issues that led to a group of construction employers deciding that it was time to create an association and it was the issues were the same. It was uh, it was fairness and transparency and tendering. It was bid shopping or the the sense that that existed. And it, of course, it it did. It always had. It just goes in cycles as to how much it was. All of those kinds of things that have remained issues for the industry since. But the way projects were procured, the way we constructed the bricks and mortar part changed relatively little through the decades. And that's not true anymore. The the industry is now changing at, I think, an exponential rate. We're seeing new methodologies we've never seen before. Collaborative contract approaches like IPD, which is integrated project delivery. It's just a form of collaborative contract your terms like lean construction as in L-E-A-N and uh, progressive project project management. These are terms that will be commonplace in a couple of years that we're just hearing a little about now as methodologies change, but it's new technology. It's new. And and our industry is, is beginning to recognize that productivity has been an issue for years. There was a U.S global consulting company, U.S.-based global consulting company, McKinsey, did a report about seven or eight years ago talking about, the context was productivity, but talking about different industries and and, uh, and which ones resisted embracing new technologies and, and the impact of that. And construction was at the bottom of the food chain with agriculture, I think, and hunting. 
that's beginning to change. So employers need to find ways to be more, more, more productive. They need to find ways to be safer. They need to find ways to manage projects under new procurement methodologies. There are challenges in our industry that have never existed before because things have, in simple terms, been done roughly the same way forever, and that's changing. You know what? It's kind of funny you say that. When I first started out in the industry, I was working for a fairly large company. Uh, I won't say the name, but you know, I started out as an assistant estimator. And I remember at that point, cell phones, they were just coming out, but they were still a little expensive. So people had to find, people had to <laughs> find pay- like suitcases. Yeah. yeah. P- people had to find the closest pay phone. You know what I mean? And then, then, yeah, tender closings, right? And then we would get our, you know, the faxes coming in, and we would have had multiple fax numbers because everyone wants to send their price. You know, and even with email, I've only seen a change in the last, I would say, six to seven years that email quotes come in more. When I started my business seven years ago, I was still getting faxes, right? Yeah. (laughs) You know, fax quotations. So you're so right in terms of, the way we do things in our industry is kind of stayed the same for some reason. And there's so much technology out there. And I do think that this COVID situation going on right now is actually forcing companies to think outside the box a little bit more and try to figure out ways, ways to be more productive. Yeah, that's a good point. That's probably true. I think that as an industry, we're embracing new technology now, finally, because we can't afford not to. So the kinds of technologies you're talking about, if somebody can't meet to resolve a problem in construction, they go on Zoom or do whatever, and and that's new technology for builders. But I'm talking about technologies that change the way we do things. If if everything we build in downtown Toronto is high-rise because there's no land left, and it's impossible to send somebody up to inspect a weld in the steel, but they're, uh, you know, they can be inspected without you actually being there by using a drone and by some sort of x-ray technology in a drone that knows where to go and when. You know, these are, are, are things that are kind of no-brainers as we begin to understand how they work. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. You know, we read about the way things happen elsewhere. So, for example, in China, they built a 59-story health, 56-story health facility in 19 uh, days. That's incomprehensible here. And, you know, when that would happen in the past, and it's happened before, we said, yeah, but there was a, a two-year lead time. They, You know, they used sub-assembly off-site and brought it together as a mechanical set. That's not true. There was no long lead time on that project. So I think it proves anything is possible. And it changes our culture and changes the way we look at things a little bit. Yeah, you know, I think that's a I think that's a great test case, shall we say, because I think, oh, I feel anyway, I know I'm exposed to it here, that everyone's paranoid about liability, right? And I guess people might question, okay, they built it in 19 days. How long is it going to last? Were the right checks made? And I think that's just something that we have to go through right now. That's a different animal, though. Um, Most things in uh, Europe, for example, were designed to last hundreds of years. Most things here were designed to last at least 50 years. We we think differently. I mean, I think we ought to be building for the long term, but but that's only one aspect of it. it. You know, when that facility was needed, it was needed quickly. And it didn't much matter at the time to the Chinese whether that building is there in 150 years. It was addressing a need that was immediate, and they had the wherewithal to deliver something quickly. Mm-hmm. So even if it lasts 50 instead of 150 years, it doesn't make it any less remarkable. What I think it proves is that anything's possible, and we have to start thinking outside the box and looking for new ways to approach old problems. So where is it that the TCA fits in, in terms of providing some of these potential guidances or thought process or something like that? Well, that's a good question. And the short answer is that we have to evolve the 
because the people that keep us in business are being forced to evolve. We too have to evolve. But we're finding our way. Everybody's finding their way, and we're no different. You know, if if you were asked uh, when I signed checks to belong to the Toronto Construction Association as a general contractor, and if I were asked why I signed the check to belong to TCA, I would have said it was about networking and advocacy and, and so on. And, and those kinds of intangible benefits, I think uh, most employers these days would argue are not enough. They need something more tangible. They need to know, you know, we're looking at companies uh, in this environment with diminishing discretionary budgets. And so they're looking more carefully at where, where they get value and is there a return on their investment and how do you quantify networking? It's, it's intangible. It's difficult. So I think, number one, we have to become more tangible in terms of our benefits anyway. And for us, when there's a challenge in the industry, and certainly COVID is creating a challenge in the industry, that's also an opportunity for us to help. So in the case of COVID, for example, a lot of projects were shut down or or set back considerably because some trades wouldn't come and work or they couldn't meet safety protocols or just any number of things. But as a consequence of COVID, contractors have had to endure very difficult circumstances and have amassed costs that they would otherwise not have had. But I'm not sure there will be a mechanism to ensure they get paid for that. So I'm not sure that contracts will recognize that COVID is force majeure or, or an act of God, something they couldn't possibly have imagined. I'm not sure how you quantify when you have to close a site because of COVID or because the government decides that it's not safe to be open. So who bears the cost of demobilization and then remobilization? And what is the mechanism for dealing with productivity losses? What happens to a company who doesn't get their hold back because that process was suspended during COVID, but that money is theirs and becomes their operating capital and they're forced to exist without it when there's no work and no income. So that could put them out of business or set them back decades. How do we deal with that? So we've tried to get involved in that process. We're, I'm working with a team across Canada that is trying to persuade the federal government that we should put a number to those intangible costs, like 5%, and just pay it because it'll cost them more. The, the alternative, and I said it in a recent article I wrote where I said that as COVID ends, a storm begins because we've got a bunch of years to sort out who was entitled to what and the payers will be frightened to make decisions because they'll worry that they're setting a precedent. It could have gone the other way. For the most part, their answer will be, the answer is no, what's your question? They'll take the high road because they don't have a mechanism as a buyer of construction to give them funding to deal with these things, whether it's an entitlement or not. So they want the courts to prove it's an entitlement. And that'll take years to work out. And construction companies aren't particularly well capitalized. They don't have a lot of assets or cash flow businesses. So they don't have staying power. Yeah. And margins are, I mean, everyone talks in the restaurant industry that margins are low, but in the construction industry, margins are pretty low as well. So that staying power, like you said, is always a challenge. I know going based on- You're right, of course. Margins are one of the reasons they have no money is margins. Well, in in Toronto, for example, it's Mm -hmm. the most competitive construction market in Canada, and it doesn't make any sense. Why are we not seeing supply and demand economics? You know, in my second year of engineering, my elective was economics. And when I studied economics, and I- didn't study much economics. It was relatively simple. Pure supply and demand. If there's an oversupply, then margins uh, go down. And if and if there's a, so, in the case of our market, where we have this superheated market and companies have all this work 
why then do they go after mark work at with such skinny margins and why do they accept the risk that's transferred to the contractor that is untenable it's not okay you know what i completely agree with you i'll tell you from my perspective uh, you know i'm a member as well of the tca and the ogca and a bunch of the associations and and what i found or at least what i've realized is part of part of the reason is that unlike other industries there doesn't seem to be a predominantly regulatory body, right? When I was doing residential construction, I sometimes had to deal and compete with, as I like to affectionately call them, the Kijiji contractors of the world, right? No liability insurance, no WSIB. And then it's it's one of those as well, I think, that things that occur more often that don't seem or are not portrayed as a commodity almost, people don't necessarily want to pay for. I mean, even now I'm hearing, you know, in the COVID stuff, people going and doing bathrooms that don't even have a business and doing it for cash. And mm-hmm. and I think that's part of the reason. I think there's a more of a fear from more of the reputable companies out there that they will lose out on work based on their overhead. They need to get some work. I think that's something that the... I don't know how they did it or when they did it. Like the uh, ESA, the Electrical Safety Authority, did well is that you can't really do any electrical, commercial, or larger residential without pulling a permit from them. That, I think, gives them that regulatory kind of side that says, yes, you are, I'm not going to say legitimate, but you know what you're doing kind of thing. You know what I mean? Our uh, our contractors, though, locally, uh, the premier said it in a speech earlier today, it's the gold standard. I mean, I, we, as an industry, pay for the sins of the, the few that ignore health and safety protocols and so on. But, but that's such, so few. Most contractors in our market, in Ontario and in particular in southwestern Ontario and Toronto, as professional as they come, they would be focused and driven to send their workforce home safely at the end of the day with or without legislative controls around what we have to do or not do. The industry has always been, our employers are preoccupied with that anyway. And the numbers in, in Ontario reflect that. If you look at COVID and the construction sites that were open, we heard a few horror stories at the beginning because all they talked about were the handful of horror stories. But for the most part, the corona did not spread through the construction industry, notwithstanding that it was an essential service and and many of the projects continued. And and I think it's remarkable how well these contractors performed through that difficult period. And as we return to work, I think they will set a standard because uh, we really do have some of the the best contractors in the world here in, in Ontario. And I think we'll see evidence of that as we look through the next little while. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with you. And I think part of what, you know, the TCA does and the construction associations in general do really well is advising their members in a, in a specific but broader capacity as well with some of the committees or brain trusts that you guys have. Do you want to speak on some of the committees and stuff that, you know, help help some of your members kind of through the process? Yeah, those are great. So, I mean, our services as, a, as an organization, maybe I'll talk to the services, the basic services first and come to the committee second. I mean, there is a need for us as an organization to bring together the very best we can, uh, as you pointed out, brain trusts to share best practices for the greater good of the industry to help suggest ways of doing things that might improve productivity, profitability, and so on for others. And I think our industry's been pretty unselfish that way. In fact, if you look at health and safety, we're in Ontario obsessed. I know TCA, for example, is involved with the League of Champions, which is about changing the culture and and champions and that leaders ought to lead and champion the cause of safety. And we're seeing uh, core as the new standard. We're seeing, we're seeing the industry evolve and it's impressive 
how employers are so willing to share their best practices with other people. Mm-hmm. Often that's through TCA because we're, you know, they can show a white flag. We get good dialogue between our trade contractors division and our general contractors division to talk through with white flags flying the issues, you know, change order protocols and those kinds of things and try to diffuse some of the things that cause angst and create challenges that can be overcome in our industry. And we do a lot of that. We've got building a better business, which is helping our SMEs, our smaller contractors better understand You know, they hang a single because they've got an expertise in some stream of the bricks and mortar side, but perhaps not uh, fully appreciating how to most profitably run a business. You know, we're not trying to run an MBA school, but, but we're just trying to share some best practices that help them. How to minimize tax, how to maximize profit and in, in a, in a, how to, how to exploit business opportunities cost-effectively. We talk about, I mean, our education stream, we grew 30-odd percent last year, and I think 43% the year before. We are moving in the direction of offering education in three or four different streams. So we're focused on e-learning because that's the age we live in. Our classroom stuff isn't just about core subjects anymore. It's about timely topics. So as we move into the new Ontario Construction Act, we talk about adjudication and we talk about prompt payment and and the impacts and, and, and how and what we need to do as an industry to prepare ourselves for that new legislation. That was a very important piece of legislation. I think it's going to take a little bit. I think to hold, it was the most was important piece of legislation since, uh, yeah. yeah, since 83. Mm-hmm. I, it's huge. Mm-hmm. It's literally enormous uh, because payment in our industry had slipped to 90 plus days. And, yeah. you know, we've already talked about the fact that on average, construction companies aren't particularly well capitalized. They just don't have staying power. We can't afford to get paid in 90 or 100 days. And disputes, to have disputes resolved in real time, that's that's a home run. It, I, I spent 15 years on that file. And governments don't change things quickly. It feels like you are pulling your hair out to continue on. Uh, for somebody who comes from construction where we get things done quickly, to move to an association and spend 15 years trying to get something done is unthinkable. But what's important is we got it done. And it's huge for us, I think, for the industry. So we're thrilled about that. Yeah. So did you guys have to, uh, not have to, did you guys work with other associations as well in conjunction? So you guys almost had a united front. We work collaboratively with it. Absolutely. And associations need to work collaboratively. We're doing that now uh, with uh, dealing with the impacts of COVID. Mm -hmm. You know, we need federal and provincial governments and municipal governments to understand that they can't transfer the risk of COVID in a tender that they would tender now because a contractor would have no concept of the consequence if it continues or there's another severe wave. Why should that risk be transferred to the contractor? You know, we've been through situations where the Trump tariffs on steel and aluminum were deemed to be a cost that contractors had to bear because the the language is so tight that they couldn't ask for extra money to compensate for costs they had to bear on these tariffs when they couldn't possibly have seen that coming. But that's how tight contract language is these days. It's about risk transfer. That was one of my biggest pet. Actually, it always has been one of my biggest pet peeves. When we get tenders and you get the big CCDC document with the supplementary conditions. And generally, we were asked to hold our prices for, you know, 60 days, 45 days, sometimes 90 days. And oh, that's nonsense it, in this market. Yeah. Oh, oh, no, in yeah, this you market. You can't hold your price for oh, 90 days. No, I'm just talking about generally, right? But it, it was hard for suppliers to hold their price 
price as well because they never knew how prices were going to fluctuate here and there. I remember. Well, we live in a a world where prices are volatile. Commodities are up and down like yo-yos. Yeah. The impact of that is enormous. We haven't seen a completed set of documents in 15 years in Canada because clients can't afford to give architects time and engineers time to complete their documents. They want it out for tender right away. The documents are incomplete. They want to go lump sum, but there are holes everywhere. And back in the day, contractors loved when there were holes. They would make money on extras. 10 and 10 wasn't uncommon for overhead and for fee. And it's been a long time since anybody made any money on extras. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. when we see a set of documents that's that's incomplete, it's a reason not to tender. And, and 20 years ago, it was the other way around. So these are challenges. Yeah, I feel like contractors don't like extras anymore because they've almost priced work for volume because of the low markup. So they want to get in, get out, and get the best job done, right? And well, that's ex- when we optimize yeah. productivity, yeah. right? If we know what we're building, and it's always been prescriptive for contractors under that lump sum model. You know, and now that contractors are being asked to sit at the pre-construction table and help plan projects, many are, are finding that they're not good at that yet because they've never done it before. They haven't been invited. Their opinion hasn't mattered. They're told what to do, that the drawings, the specs, the instructions to bidders, if that package collectively is comprehensive enough, then it's paint by numbers. We do what we're told to do and we do it quickly. But when we find holes in those documents, then we are stalled as an industry while we ask. And and to be fair to the architects and engineers, it's physically impossible for them to get the documents as complete as they would like them to be when they are, you know, like the contractors bidding competitively. So lowest price gets the, gets the job and they make promises that they couldn't possibly keep and do the job right. So there isn't sufficient time to, you need 18 months to design something, you have 12. You want 15%, we'll give you 11 including your engineers uh, or, or nine and sub-consultants. So it's a vicious circle and there is no simple solution. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying. When I first started, everything was lump sum, lump sum, lump sum. Nick, now I only do commercial work, but over the last... It's changing slowly. But you know what? Over the last year, year and a half, I've been pretty fortunate with some of my clients. They have actually brought me in at the start when they first engaged, you know, architects and engineers. So that value, so that value engineering and that pre-construction planning can actually happen in conjunction with the design and the client's budget. And what we found is it speeds up the process of construction. It lowers the cost. It leads to less. hundred uh, percent, but for right? value engineering it has to happen as a pre-construction exercise. The, exactly. Doing it in you know, during it construction. That's after right. After a lump sum tender. To me, that's the biggest change for me. Like when I started getting more involved on the pre-construction phase and that collaboration from the you yeah. know, from the start of the project and understanding the client's vision from the start with the architects and all, I think it just for me it added a completely different perspective as to construction services as a whole entity instead of, like you said, lump sum, here are the drawings, price it, and just go. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I think we've got to look at things differently than we have historically. Uh, we've also got to source the right projects and the right fit. I mean, one of the things that we do as a business, and you know, TCA, I, I talked about the growth in something like education. You know, we're fast approaching the million dollars a year in in education revenue. And it's about doing it right. And, uh, you know, we used to, everything was done by bringing people into one of our offices to take a class. And now if you've got 15 people, we'll come to you. And when we can, we create e-learning so that you can do it online or hybrids that you can do either way. We've had, uh, you know, one of the important value propositions or, or, or value sources in association is, for those that have it, is the electronic plans room. There's no such thing 
as a physical plans room anymore. Some general contractors keep a room with a set of drawings that some trades can come in and look at. But for anybody halfway sophisticated, they're doing it all online. And electronic plans rooms have a terrific user-friendly search engine that allows them to cut to the chase and get what they need quickly. If they're uh, if they're a supplier of widgets, then they know which projects spec widgets. And and we, as an association, were the first construction association in Canada to have an electronic plans room. And now, decades later, we've moved off just a tendering platform. We've recently partnered with Construct Connect and are working in concert with Construct Connect and providing a project intelligence platform, which is much more than just a tendering platform. It's a it's a pre-construction so it's the ultimate pre-construction solution. More importantly, it will soon and fast become, I think, the largest project data platform in Canada. And that's important. It it allows trades to promote their company inside the platform. It allows a bidder to select a project and share that information collaboratively both inside their office and outside it. Uh, and and one of the, the, the most important things that we've introduced with this Construct Connect Project Intelligence Platform, and, and I talk about the Project Intelligence Platform, that really replaces the one we had in, in many ways, but there is a platform that is designed for general contractors with, with tendering, with, with ITB, uh, invitation to bid, kinds of technology and and there are some that are designed more for a supplier or a building product manufacturer allows you to find out how often you've been specced it gives you some intuitive tools but the intuitiveness of the tendering platform itself is phenomenal it'll pick up projects you would otherwise miss because the system recognizes what kinds of projects you look for and are profitable for you and finds those projects and sends them to you. And you can push that off into leading edge takeoff software. And I know as a former estimator, you mentioned you were a former estimator. Frankly, we should all be <laughs> estimators at one time in our career if we're going to be effective in the construction industry. But we as estimators have never felt confident around digital takeoff software. But that situation, that, that's not true anymore. You know, with BIM technology, we're creating projects in three dimensions. That The takeoff software, the good takeoff software, is actually more reliable than our estimators these days. In, in the case of Construct Connect's platform, they actually run it through an app so you can access all of that through your phone. And, you know, we live in an industry that's mobile. If you run a small business, then you are running from project to project in a pickup truck. And the fact that you can search out projects that will come intuitively to you uh, via your phone when you're on the run is huge. So you talked about how are we choosing to evolve as an organization. We're, we're about what will help our businesses be more profitable. And we have always provided a platform that we, that we owned, that we ran working with software companies, of course, but it was our platform. And we've chosen this time to partner with Construct Connect because it's about offering our members best in class at the most affordable price in the market. It's about best in class. I agree with Construct Connect. I've actually used them for a number of years with their insights. You know, I tried out their smart bid. They've got a ton of different uh, softwares. I think I was about to mention the smart bidding system. You know, the uh, for tendering from a GC perspective, and so it's you know the the platform that they have and that you guys are connected with. I think is is pretty fantastic. I think as well that and correct me if I'm wrong that with you guys focusing a little bit more on this technology side, maybe it'll start attracting some of the let's say the younger generation to come in, I'm sure we've heard in the news about lack of trades, lack of this, you know, finding those people to come into construction. Well, we don't have to attract the younger generation. That's the, by far the most dynamic group of TCA is the young construction leaders group. I am blown away by how good that group is. Without question, they're the most dynamic 
group uh, in our organization anywhere. And let's face it, decision makers aren't my age. You know, they're 40 or 35. And we need to recognize that the system isn't what it used to be. You know, CEOs aren't uh, people with lots of gray hair uh, who've been around since forever. It's it's who is best qualified for the job. Mm-hmm. I remember when Gord Nixon was made president of Royal Bank, which was the largest Schedule A bank in Canada, largest bank in Canada, period, by a good margin. He was 44 years old. That was unthinkable a generation earlier. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't look at anybody under 55 years old. And he was 44 years old and did an extraordinary job, of course. He's a good friend, and I, I can't think of anybody I respect more. But for a reason, he was ready. He was the right guy, and, and the time was right. And he was better able to do that job at 44 than he would have been a decade later. And decision makers are younger now. And those of us that don't evolve won't survive. So uh, employers are figuring, figuring that out. I mean, as an industry, we're, we have more challenges now, I think, than we've ever had. But I talked about the fact that our industry is slow to evolve, and that's true in terms of technology. But we're entrepreneurs. We, we embrace challenge. We figure stuff out as an industry, always have and always will. And that's what makes us unique. No challenge is ever insurmountable in construction. And it's a unique bunch. And it's one of the reasons I enjoy so much what I do, because I interact all day, every day with my favorite group of people uh, in any sector is the construction sector. And uh, I look at, at the staff we attract and keep, and they love interacting with people. Uh, they love the challenges that our industry has in trying to make a difference. And we have a, an extraordinary group. I love the group we have at, at TCA. and I love our board, which is diverse and dynamic and helpful on the corporate governance. Uh, I just find myself loving my job now more than ever. And with a little luck, I'll do it for a while longer. <laughs> well, 15 years in, right? And that, that, actually, I was going to ask you, so what, what's, what's next for you? What's next for the TCA? Like, obviously, COVID is going on right now. Are you guys obviously are trying to guide our industry through this uh, let, let let's just say um, first ever phase that we just don't know how to react or when stuff is going to change. Well, the stage one return to work is pretty simple for construction. It's everybody's back to work. We're fortunate to be an essential service or, or at least health projects, large infrastructure projects. A good number of the construction projects in Ontario continued through COVID, which was good news. And I think I said before, I've been overwhelmingly impressed by how well run those projects were under difficult circumstances. So how does it evolve for us as an organization moving forward? As it relates to COVID specifically, I talked about the whole notion of who's entitled to what and how do we get these things resolved quickly when everybody is hiding behind a rock, waiting for the courts to decide, that will be an enormous battle for us. And we need to find ways to help. Uh, And there will be brain trusts created that help. We're working long, long hours right now trying to get governments to recognize that they need to create mechanisms that allow some of these folks to get paid because the alternative is half half the industry is gone. You know, when I look at at mega projects, I look at projects, for example, procured by Infrastructure Ontario on behalf of uh, ministries in Ontario at Queen's Park. And I look at, and I know they've been criticized, but the truth is they've been extraordinary in uh, relative to how infrastructure procurement uh, in the private-public partnership arena have performed globally. Canada has been extraordinary and and it's a great group and they've performed very well. But there are so many companies now coming to Canada because there are so few companies with the wherewithal to do these mega projects. And, you know, we need, uh, first of all, the world is fast becoming flat. So opportunities abound for us elsewhere and for 
companies coming in from other parts of the world here. I get that, especially after 2008. But we would love to see our homegrown companies be capable of handling more work. I worry a little bit that bonding is becoming more difficult to get and that projects can't grow because of restrictions like that. And now we're facing this skilled labor shortage like we've never seen before. And that will become as a challenge more acute by the minute going forward. So our industry, it's going to take the best of the best for us to survive. And I think we have to uh, find out from the leaders what it is they're doing uh, that's their magic formula for success and share that with our other contractors so that as Canadian and Ontario contractors, we prosper and survive because it'll be very difficult for the foreseeable future. And pre-COVID, we had that anyway. We had that with technology. We had that with helping them uh, understand new methodologies. We had that with preparing them for prompt payment and adjudication and, and lean act reform. We've had that with new approaches. To, it's just opportunities abound. I think some of the stuff is just coming to the forefront. I think before when I was talking about the young people, I think, you know, I was actually referring to more in the trades. And it's interesting you say that because, you know, I'm talking to, the guy is not here in, in, in Canada, but he's based just outside San Francisco. And they have a lack of skilled trades as well. And he's a civil engineer by education, but he he started a not-for-profit organization that teaches high school kids the trades by building tiny homes. What an interesting concept, right? Like just to you know introduce that skilled trade to somebody at that young of an age to see does it spark an interest yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what i mean like it's such an such an awesome concept i agree i agree completely uh, this has been fantastic speaking with you john uh, last but not least uh, where can people find you where can people find more about the tca how do they find out more uh, this is our 22nd infomercial <laughs> <laughs> fair enough Our website is tcaconnect.com. Toronto Construction Association, I think most people are aware of its existence because it's been around for so long. And I would love them to be in touch about what we're doing now that's new and different and how we're confronting the challenge of evolving and, and dealing with the dynamics and the challenges of an industry that's forced to evolve. I wouldn't be doing what I what I do now if I didn't love it and didn't feel that we're in the midst of more change than we have ever had and at a rate we've never seen. So I'm excited by it, and I uh, we have the right group. We've got a, a an extraordinary uh, group of staff. We've got a great board. I think we've got the right people in place, the right committee chairs and committee participation to make a genuine difference. And as long as we're making a genuine difference, then then we will be a value proposition. And if we don't meet that challenge, then shame on us. And we need to constantly, I think, evolve and improve. And that's uh, what we're trying to do as an organization. And thank you, our listener, for tuning in today. I hope you gained as much insight as I did from John. It's been my pleasure. Please do share this episode with any of your friends or colleagues in the industry. We are available on all platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Products, among others. Sean Tickner joins us on our second episode to talk trade skills and tiny homes. We touch on mentorship, passion, the challenges, and vision, just to name a few, for his not-for-profit organization, Big Skills Tiny Homes.